This week, we've transformed into the secret life of lasagna as philanthropist, immigration activist, and the second lady of Pennsylvania, Giselle Fetterman, joins us, and we bake up lasagna for the nationwide kindness movement called Lasagna Love. As her husband, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, prepares to run for Senate, we talk about how she copes with the nastiness that comes with politics and how her early life as an undocumented immigrant in this country informs her work as a philanthropist. This was a very special episode for me. Giselle may not be a household name everywhere, but she should be. The way she leads by example is inspiring. Plus, she explains how we can all be nebby for good. We laughed, we cried, we made lasagna. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Giselle. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, Giselle Fetterman. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Secret Life of Cookies, which today we're altering the name of and going to call it The Secret Life of Lasagna. (laughs) Um, you are a um, well-known, and I suspect will only become even more well-known, philanthropist and activist, and um, founder of, of many very helpful, useful nonprofits in the Pittsburgh area, among other places, and also the second lady of Pennsylvania. And that, my friends, was the sound of a jar of tomato sauce opening up. So everybody knows. A judgment here. We don't have to make things from scratch. You know? <laughs> this is very much that lasagna. And I am with you 100%. I am not the person who had a giant bubbling cauldron of tomato sauce to make lasagna. I find it's too many steps. And bless the grandmothers who do it. But this, I'm no one's, but right. not a busy mother. Not a busy mother. So not the one. <laughs> not the one. So, like I said, you are the second lady of Pennsylvania, which I, I think I love the title. Um, you are happen to be married to a man named John Fetterman, who is the lieutenant governor of this great state of Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, and he um, uh, got a lot of uh, really positive attention this past election season, defending the rights of the people of Pennsylvania to vote and have their votes be counted. And I've heard that there's some large chance that he will be hopefully running for the Senate seat in the state of Pennsylvania. Can you confirm or deny this, Ms. Fetterman? I can confirm. He's officially <laughs> announced, so I'm not like breaking any rules here. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so you are ensconced in Braddock, Pennsylvania, where you have lived with him since you got married, is that right? Right, yeah, I lived originally in Brazil, then New York, then New Jersey, um, but I've been in Pennsylvania now for 13, 14 years. Before we get on to the making of the lasagna, there really is some lead up to us sitting here making lasagnas and for lasagna love, which we'll talk about, um, because this lasagna is going out to a family in need, correct? And the reason, like, I don't want to get all like Oprah and talk about your relationship with your husband. Uh, But you, out of the blue, wrote him a letter. You yourself were an uh, activist for um, for food, food insecure people. And you reached out to him because of that? No. So at the time, I had a nonprofit in a small private practice. Uh, working with food justice, my background's in nutrition. So I had a nutrition work, I did consulting work, and then I had a small nonprofit and working in the city of Newark, trying to, you know, work within the food desert, helping families make better choices when their choices were so limited already. And I was at a retreat where I read about Braddock. And what drew me to Braddock was this idea that someone, a person, a place, or a thing can contribute so much to anything, right? And then be kind of discarded. And that was the idea. Braddock was a richly historic community that had, I mean, Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill was in Braddock. I mean, just incredibly historic. The contributions were just so grand. And then 90% of people walked away from it. 
You know, there was no investing from the politicians, uh, leadership didn't care. So I was really drawn to this idea that, you know, for so long of my life, I felt like a discarded person or like a <clears throat> invisible person, let's say, and that this community had been the victim of that. I just felt connected to it. So I actually wrote a letter to the borough. It wasn't addressed to him. It was addressed to the city. And it was more like I wanted to just learn. I wanted to understand. I wanted to see it firsthand. Um, and then the letter ended up with John, who called me, and then I planned the visit a few months later. And what did you think when you got to Braddock? And how soon after were you like, I like Braddock? This well, mayor I, guy is really interesting, too. <laughs> so I say I fell in love with Braddock first. Um, I drove around Braddock. I, I really felt a connection to this community. You know, it wasn't when you'd read articles online, they made it sound so scary and, you know, all these kind of statistics, but I could see this amazing community. And really I was in love with the people who stayed, you know, think about 90% of your neighbors leaving and you saying, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to fight. Like I was in love with them. I thought they were just amazing. And I wanted to be a part of it. Of course, when John met me, he fell madly in love with me instantly. And, you know, for me, it took a little longer, but, um, you know, here we are. <laughs> Speaking of love, um, it's a good transition to what we're making today, which um, is, it's all part of, um, it all fits in perfectly into your background. And that's this uh, a group called Lasagna Love, which started last year. Can you tell me a little bit about Lasagna Love? Yeah, I learned it started during the pandemic and I became aware of them. Someone locally had signed up and they shared with me and I just became a huge fan. And it's this idea that, you know, we are so lonely. I mean, especially during the pandemic, we were so lonely, feeling so disconnected. So many of our loved ones struggling financially. If you were already struggling, you were struggling even more. And what's an easy way to share love? You know, and the lasagna is such a comfort food. And it's something that takes love to pour into it. There's so many layers. There's so many steps. And this amazing woman out of California started this organization with this idea that you make a lasagna for a stranger, you know, and you can sign up to be a recipient of a lasagna. It could be that you just lost your job. It could be that you're just lonely or struggling or having a rough day. Um, and you can sign up to either bake a lasagna or receive it. And then they match you. So once a week, I think they do the matches. And then you get an email says you've been matched. This is your recipients. And they sometimes have a little history on the person and it helps you understand more what they're going through. And then you get to pour all your love into something for someone you've never met. And I love, I love that part of it. I think that's a really helpful um, energy to focus in this pandemic time. I mean, hooray, it's been one whole year. And what better time if you haven't done something like this than to like, there's a lot of energy, <laughs> positive and negative. Natural, so wherever you live, mm -hmm. uh, if they don't have a chapter yet, they will quickly make one. So, you know, it doesn't matter where you live. If you have an interest in baking a lasagna for someone you don't know and making them happy, you register on the website and then they will find someone to be the recipient and then tell your neighbors about it. And it just grows from there. I am proud to say Pennsylvania is now the number one site for lasagna love. Well, I hope that love spreads towards New Jersey, which is kind of like, you know, the lasagna capital of America anyway, but, <laughs> but because I signed up for lasagna love this week and there were no matches for me in my area. So I hope that the word gets out and there, there becomes a, I'm sure there's, I know there's a need and I know that. Um, so I'm going to be making a lasagna today to share with my family. Um, a very small one that's going to go in the freezer for me because that's one of the great things about lasagna is you can make loads of them at a time and then pop some in the freezer, eat some that day. It's It always wonderful. tastes better, right? The next day. It's all even better. better. I don't understand all the, the logic, but it's, just, it's true. <laughs> like all the flavors absorb into each other. You, um, I think, have been a vegetarian for a long time. You're making a vegetarian lasagna oh, yeah. for I us today. One. Yep. Oh, it's a beautiful pan. It's a beautiful. She's a white pan with like very uh, stylized it's red. A woman-owned organization um, called Great Jones, and I just love everything. It's two ladies who started it, and they're originally from Pittsburgh, and I love all their stuff. I want to cook just to use their stuff. 
this pan, I, I, I have to say, um, even though this is only radio, is really stunning. Beautiful curved edges and the lovely like curved, very sort of 19, uh, very sort of modern curved um, arched red curves all over it. It's beautiful. <laughs> I am not doing it justice, a scalloped red curve. Anyway, um, I'm going to go in the Great Jones when I'm done here and um, find myself, because I'm using a plain old clear oven safe Lovely Pyrex. Still. And this way you can see the layers. Um, <laughs> so what do you put into, so this is obviously from an ancient Brazilian lasagna recipe that you Of course, because that's a big dish in my country. Um, I have some oven ready lasagna noodles because, you know, <laughs> convenience. Um, you actually, I got all my ingredients at Aldi's. I don't, does New Jersey have an Aldi's? Yes, we do. And they, a new one just opened near me, like five miles away. And I'm so excited. Oh, good. Yeah. I only discovered Aldi's in Pennsylvania. And I love how nothing makes sense where it is. Like, I love the unknown, right? So all the ingredients are from Aldi's today. <laughs> Especially during the pandemic, when perhaps the only place you've been going is the supermarket. It's like, it's a world of discovery. Everything is new. <laughs> this does not belong together, but this is where I will find it. I just I love that. I'm going to grab a spoon. I'll be right back. Okay. I've become quite a lasagna expert. <laughs> so had, before this, had you ever made a lasagna? No, that was my first lasagna. And I love also that they start with a recipe, you know, they start with a dish that's I think foolproof, right? I think as long as you pour love into it, it's really hard to get it wrong, which I've learned. So that gave me the confidence to push past my fears and make this lasagna. And then the woman I delivered to actually found me on Twitter and tweeted, Giselle makes the best lasagna in the world. And I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I, um, I make a lasagna... Um with bechamel sauce, which makes it sound really fancy, but it's like traditional Italian. So it's a sauce of butter and flour that I'm I picked. In a jar? That, <laughs> this I actually make myself, oh, but everything else, everything <laughs> else, even my sauce comes in a jar. So I could be a little snotty about that, but otherwise, no. And I'm such a big believer in these pre-boiled noodles and I don't understand people who would use something else and if you would like to write oh yours are pretty hers have a curved edge mine are very straight um but I don't understand why anybody would use anything else because my experience with wet noodles like hanging them all over my kitchen so they wouldn't get starchy and weird I don't get I it. Just, maybe people just don't know about this maybe we're just teaching people right now about these noodles <laughs> And, or maybe they just watched their mother do it because my mother never, ever, ever, ever made a lasagna. Buy lasagna? Sure. But that was not, not a family meal in my house. Um, I always put tomato sauce on the bottom. What do you put on the bottom? Me too. Tomato sauce first. Um, and my pan is so small that I have to break my pasta. So what are your layers? What do you have going on there? So it'll be tomato sauce and then the noodles. And then I'll, I'm doing an Italian style blend of skim mozzarella, not smoked provolone, Romano, Asiago, Parmesan, all finely shredded. And I'm gonna add some ricotta as well and parsley flakes. Yummy. I sometimes add pesto to either the ricotta mixture or I add it to the bechamel sauce um, just yeah. to add color and flavor. Or you can always sneak in like spinach or something like that and just tell people that it's parsley. <laughs> They'll never know. They'll never Until know. they listen to this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but no child under the age of, you know, six listens, do they? But there are all sorts of things, that, all sorts of different ways you can amend a, a lasagna to make it tastier. And I mean, whatever you have, I mean, you could add mushrooms, you could add, I mean, obviously meat um, if you're a meat person. And it's funny, my first one that I made for a family, they asked for a meat one. And I won't even touch like meat. I would never make meat for Don. Like I just don't, you know, I've never eaten meat in my whole life. I, and so he walks in the kitchen and I'm full blown in this like meat dish. And he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm making lasagna. He's like, you will touch meat for a complete stranger. 
and you would never touch it. It's like, sorry. But I think that shows you how much love, like, you know, what you're willing to do to help another family. For other people, not for yeah. him. <laughs> so the interesting thing to note about where you live, which I think a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't, is that you live over a former car dealership in a loft in Braddock, Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yeah, I live in, I live inside a former dealership. Um, so my living room, my living space is actually where cars would be displayed. It was actually the country's first indoor car dealership. So it was the first time cars were sold indoors. That's fascinating. That should be on the National Register of Historic Places, I hope. Yeah, it's um, interesting. And when we purchased the space, there was a car here. There was an old Chevy that had been left behind and it had to be craned out the window. We had to remove an entire window wall and it had to be craned out. You didn't, you weren't able to just drive it out the doors like in the olden days. <laughs> no, but um, we found like old receipts when cars cost $700. Oh and I, I mean, the history is just amazing. I'm so, I feel so grateful I get to live in this space. And I think of who used to work here before and coming to work with like a lunch pail and you know, those stories just, I just love it. I love history. I do too. And I think that's, um, it's a fascinating piece of American history too. the idea that it was the first indoor car dealership and the fact that it was in a steel mill town, right? <laughs> so it meant that there was people, there were people who had the money at the time to get themselves this luxury. Right. Like I look across the street, like from my windows where I'm sitting, that's the mill behind me. So, oh my gosh. And it's worked every single day. It's never closed since it opened in the 18. 67 you'll have to double check but it's around there um and you know it was a lot mostly were immigrants that were coming to this country with this promise and they came to work in conditions where many of them died on the job they had no protections and i never don't think of them as i look out my window and and see the mill you you posted on um twitter today something about haluski which i think speaks to the immigrants that came to your area originally, right? Where they all from Ukraine, Eastern Europe? Yeah, Eastern Europe. So, um, you know, it's fish fry season in Western PA. In New Jersey, there wasn't much of that when I lived there, at least I don't remember. But out here, it's big. So every Friday, a lot of the volunteer fire stations will host fish fries with fundraisers. And I love halushki. And uh, I was there eating buying all the halushki. <laughs> and halushki is what for those who have never it's eaten? Like egg noodle and cabbage with like a little butter. It's delicious. So like good. Real, real soul food, I think. Yeah, delicious. I love it. Um, so you yourself were uh, an immigrant to this country, as were all Americans, the truth being. But you um, came as an illegal immigrant, right? To yeah, this country. our family was undocumented. We... Um, came as tourists and then never left so we stayed you, in you, you, you came with your mom from rio right mm -hmm. my mom and my brother we were um you know trying for a new life escaping violent conditions in my country in my city and my mom just overnight you know here's your passport here's a suitcase Pack your favorite things. We're going on an adventure. <laughs> and it, it was an adventure, indeed. <laughs> and so you and your brother, are, you're eight or seven years old or something like that. You come here and you move to the Bronx. What was it like? Like, how do you live in the, how did you live in the early days of being an undocumented immigrant in this country? So we moved to Queens. That's where we- Oh, Queens, sorry. We lived in Astoria um, and we moved to Jackson Heights. And it was, I mean, she set clear expectations. She said, this is an adventure. <laughs> um, she didn't oversell. Uh, so, you know, I remember at that age, like having to pack was really difficult for me, even more so than moving because at seven years old, everything in my room felt like really necessary, you right. know? And she's like, well, pick just what you, your favorite things they have to put in a suitcase. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I need everything because you're seven. Um, but I ultimately packed a journal and a teddy bear and I still have the journal, clothes, some books. And we just arrived in New York and it was like, okay, now we have to find an apartment because we didn't know anyone. Uh, we didn't speak English. Uh, so it really was truly an adventure. <laughs>
The challenge of finding an apartment, not speaking English, two small children, that's really heroic of your mother. Amazing. You know, in Brazil, she had a really coveted career. She had advanced degrees. She was a nutritionist as well, but, you know, with a PhD and she ran hospitals. She ran the nutrition for multiple hospitals. And I mean, just amazing. And I try to think of myself today, if I would have the courage and if I was in a situation where I needed to flee, if I could do that as a single mom with kids and not speaking the language, I don't know that I'd be that brave, um, but she's amazing. And she said, you know, I, and she became a domestic worker when she came here. So she was cleaning hotels and homes and working as a coach girl in the evenings. And she said, I would clean toilets for the rest of my life, knowing that you're safe. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I get emotional. Yeah, I mean, just amazing, just amazing. And as an adult, have you talked to her about what it means? Pardon my dog. As an adult, would you, uh, have you talked to her about what was, what her thinking was like on those, uh, the, the move to here, like on those first days and weeks here? All the time, you know, like I'm always so grateful. I've always been very grateful of her sacrifices, of her courage, um, but she never looked back. I mean, she has no regrets. And, you know, she taught me from a very young age that you can start over at any time. So I've never been fearful of failure, of something not working out because between my grandmother, who's 94, who's here now as well, really it was the two of them. I know that I can restart my life at any time. I know that any of us can. So, um, you know, I was gifted the, the immense gift of perspective. And I had that from a very young age. And my life always changed drastically overnight. All the changes in my life happened very fast. So I know that nothing stays the same, you know? And so I really am just present. I don't look to next week or to next year or to next month. It's really today. If you're in front of me, you're my entire focus. Um, and I think that helps get through every day. <clears throat> has it helped you during the pandemic? It has, it has. And I'm also so ADHD. So I'm always like jumping off the walls and doing the million things. And I think, <laughs> I think that has helped me too, because first I was like, oh my God, if I have to close my nonprofits, am I going to be stuck at home every day? Because to me, that would be the worst, but I was only busier than ever at, during the pandemic. So um, the chaos is kind of good for my brain. You know, I think I thrive in that situation, but it helped me. Like, I just have to get through today. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I lived in limbo for so long. You know, we were undocumented for almost 15 years and my mom would the morning when we left for school, she would say, I love you. Have a great day. Be invisible. And I heard that every day of my life because any misstep could have gotten us deported. So I think the living in limbo for so long, it almost killed my long-term vision. I don't have the ability, like I can try, but I just can't see the future because I think I'm still trying to survive. That's fascinating. And you're undoubtedly right. That's what's kind of informed it. But what, a, I mean, even for those of us who didn't experience that, it's a great message, right? That it's just, let's just live in the present right now. What was it? How do you take on the message of being invisible when you're nine, 10 years old? Like you have to go to school and be present there, but. So I had to be the best student. I couldn't get in any kind of trouble. Um, we weren't able, we weren't allowed to play school sports because we were uninsured. So if I had an injury, we couldn't afford to get it fixed. Like I broke my nose in gym class when I was nine and I just had it fixed in the last like three years. Cause I finally was like, I can't breathe anymore. And like, I should do something about this. Um, but you know, I eventually I had a collapsed nasal wall by then. And, but I mean, that's the reality of like uninsured kids at that time. That's just what we did. We were surviving, but looking back, if I was able to fix a broken nose, I would have breathed. Like I would have been able to breathe these last 30 years. Um, or if I had had an ADHD diagnosis as a child that would have helped me as well you know so I think of these things now as an adult whereas at the time I was just surviving and you've taken your energies and your kind of knowledge of what it feels like to be 
someone in limbo and created these nonprofits in the Pittsburgh area. How did they come around? T tell me what the two profit, what the two nonprofits are. Sure. Yeah. So I started the free store first. The free store is almost nine years old. Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that so many of us have so much and so many have so little, and there's so much excess, not only in homes, but in retail coupled with so much waste, right? And this all exists in this world, just like one in six are food insecure. Oh, John, say hi. I'm, I'm in this for the lasagna. You know? <laughs> she promised she was going to make me cabbage lasagna I'm going to make so. that for you next. Okay, all right. <laughs> he likes it with cabbage as a substitute for pasta. I think that's a great substitute. That means that's what we were talking about earlier about the flexibility of lasagna. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Do you cook it? Do you cook it first? The, the no, cabbage? no. So one, the recipe I read said to like drop it in boiling water for thirty seconds, leaf by leaf. And I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. That's too, too much work. <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I gotta tell you, like, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> I, it, it really is. I I don't really miss pasta. And with, with uh, cabbage lasagna, you don't have to. It's amazing. Right, because what are you eating the lasagna for, really? All the stuff between the layers. I mean, exactly. me personally, yeah. right? Well, I'm like, I'm not going to throw this in water for 30 seconds, like leaf by leaf and then dry it. I was like, no. So I just went with it, and he's like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. Yeah, we're, and we're adding mushrooms, too, this time. I'm so excited. He's very excited. You're gonna, you're gonna do the complete thing. Imagine if you added sausage to it; he'd go nuts. Um, but you won't. So it's okay. You can have it on the side. Yeah, she can't do sausage. I'm seeing sausage. So you know, the free store was this idea that these worlds exist. You know, and like with food insecurity, one in six are food insecure, and we throw out forty percent of the food. There is a disconnect, right? And we're not communicating. And when we finally found that first apartment in New York, we had no furniture in it for a really long time until bulk garbage day. When you go out in the street and everyone puts out their furniture, it to me, it was like Christmas morning. I'm like, what's happening here? This is amazing. And we were able to furnish our apartment, everything, the desk I did my homework in. I mean, everything came from the trash and it was a shock to me, but also it created this responsibility. Like I needed to find homes for things, just like my family needed these items. Other people needed them too. So the free store was really born when I was an eight-year-old kid, you know, looking through trash in the streets of New York. And it was this idea that we can have a place where this can happen. You know, I dumpster dived and I, you know, my, I remember my like jackpot was the day we found a dumpster full of chunky chocolate bars. And I was like, oh my God, this is America. This is <laughs> And we had like two years supply of chunky chocolate bars. They weren't even expired. They just, who knows why they threw it out. It was the pharmacy. Um, but I wanted to create a space where that could happen and it could be dignified and it can be loving and you can come and shop. You know, it's just like reading. It studies show that if a child actually chooses the book to read, they're going to thrive much more as readers. Just like if you go to a food bank and you get a box, everything inside that box may be something you don't eat, right? right. So the, the, just being able to choose, there's such dignity in that. And that's what we wanted to create. And do, do you have suggestions for people who, if, there's, if you don't have a, a food bank like that near you that you can donate to, you know, how people can in their own community, you know, help those who are food insecure? I mean, there's a young man who started like a registry of food pantries all over the country. And that includes little street pantries that you've seen pop up. So there might be new one, one near you that you can put some extra things you have every once in a while. Um, but, you know, also being like a Nebby shopper is really helpful. Like I would be in the, and Nebby is a Pennsylvania word. Is that used there? No. What does Nebby mean? Nebby is like nosy and just like in their business. Uh, so my relationship with Costco started because I'm Nebby and we were shopping at Costco and a, an employee was wheeling to the back of the store pallets of bananas and they weren't brown or gross. They were just yellow bananas. And I'm like, where are you taking these bananas? You know? And he's like, oh, they're going to be thrown out because they are yellow and people buy green bananas. And I was like, oh my I've been God. looking for yellow bananas forever, right? <laughs> so statistically, it seems Americans mostly want green bananas. They want the ripening to happen at home and you get to witness it 
so yellow bananas were being discarded all over in bodegas and wholesalers and grocery stores. So my partnership with Costco started because I said, hey, next time you have these bananas, can you call me and I'll give them out at the free store. Now uh, we've getting, been getting food for them for the last nine years. Uh, we get all their produce, baked goods and deli items. So it started for being nebby, but you know, now I have like, I have an employee at Rite Aid that says, Hey, every time we get a new chocolate delivery, they want us to throw out all the chocolate. He's like, I can't do it. So I sneak it and I bring it to the free store. Um, so, you know, being aware of what you're, where you shop, what they do with their access, every place has access and what are they doing with it and asking questions. I think that's one way to, to help. So I think we should all embrace the nebby. Right, yes, we should all become nebby. too, right? Nebby is it's a so much word. fun. It's so much fun, and you, we can all become nebbies and go into like, I've seen it in the shop, right? Right, you know, I buy brown bananas. I want them because I make lots of banana bread, but and they're healthier. Like I like brown bananas because they're healthier. But also something to think about at, at the toy store or at the grocery store. If a packaging gets dented, that will likely end up in the landfill. And that's something so simple. So unless it's a gift that I'm giving someone that I want it to look perfect, I look for the items that are slightly damaged because I know they're going to end up in the landfill and I don't want that. So, and I don't care if there's a box that's bent at the corner. It doesn't matter to me, mm-hmm. but that's something we do. We always want the most beautiful thing, right? We want the perfect, we want the apple that looks perfect and we want this and that's cultural. I think that's what we've always done. And I think it's challenging those, those conceptions. And one, it means that we're eating the world's most flavorless apples, the Macintosh, which you could photograph and it's beautiful for Instagram, <laughs> but the rest, the really nice ones turn out to be the kind of ugly ones that are like pitted with hailstones and you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But I just also want to point out to anybody listening, when I say I go to the grocery store to look for brown bananas, um, that the point of this is not that I should score myself some pre-brown bananas, but that <laughs> I should become nebby and make sure that they get to the local food pantry or people that I know that need them, right? Because there yeah. is so much waste that goes on. Right. There was, I spoke to a, an office, it was like a, an attorney's office who went full virtual, right? During the pandemic, as so many others did. But they had weekly deliveries to the office of coffee, of things that all sat in their office for a year plus. And then someone goes into the office and they're like, oh my God, we have all this food and we're just going to throw it away. And I was like, if it's not expired, bring it down to the free store. They brought in like hundreds of pounds of food. So that's not unique. So these opportunities are kind of everywhere. You just have to think about it. I learned that Carter's, you know, children's clothing, returned items were all going to the dumpster. So the returned items were not going back on the shelf. They were being thrown out. So now they donate all of that to the free store. So these opportunities, I think, I think like a trash picker, my brain is always like thinking of trash. So I think once you kind of turn that switch in your brain, you find this kind of creative ways to, to rescue all sorts of things. I mean, as a, you know, kid, like a nine-year-old trash picking and finding what to a nine-year-old would be like a a desk is nice, but three years worth of chocolate bars. You know, you got the ultimate like Pavlovian reward there. No wonder. <laughs> and it's good that you've turned that into something positive for other people as well. Um, you all, so there's the um, the there's food rescue and the free store. So and, and, and for good and for good. And people can. I think the key is that people get to kind of you know be human and not dehum you know not be dehumanized, and they can just go into these stores and shop without having to prove anything, right? Right. And like, I want to normalize, like I wear 90% thrifted clothes. Like I, I love things that have a history. I love things that are in circulation. I know how many gallons of water it takes to make a new pair of jeans. I don't want it. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't think, you know, fast fashion is killing our planet and women overseas are being exploited making these clothing. And so like, I want to normalize wearing used clothes and like all these things that I think have been you know we've been taught that we shouldn't do these things you know we shouldn't talk about them and um I want to make that normal (laughs) I think the um generation that is my daughter who she's like uh, she's a senior in high school all her friends are very much into vintage clothing shopping they're like what 
It's coming and back around. And I, I the Gen Z is going to save us all. Exactly. I, I, no, I mean it. That, you know, she's like, well, why should I be involved in fast fashion? And it's a message that for all that I can yammer about oh, social media, they're on their computer, phone all the time. Blah, blah, blah. It's a it's a mess. It's one of the positive messages that's been spread that way. And I think that's great. There are a lot of negative messages that are also sent around uh, on social media. And I think the world that we live in has gotten uh, a lot meaner. We, we, there was a, we, the former, there's a former president who I really no desire to mention, who was not very pleasant and um, encouraged meanness. Perhaps you recall him. Um, but as you guys sort of head, I don't like to say his name anymore. Um, I don't want him taking up space in my head. But as you guys, as a family move into, I mean, you're already in the public eye, but as you move into um, the run for Senator, do you, do you worry about the meanness that's out there? Like, how do you cope with it? How do you protect your children and educate them in how to cope with it? Oh my God, there's so much of it. And I, <clears throat> I'm sure it will grow, but I can't imagine it growing because it's already so much and it has been so much for so many years. And, you know, I get more hate mail than John does any, give, any given day of the week. And so- Well, first of all, you get hate mail? Like oh. who, who like, I, it's a surprising to me, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, mm -hmm. but I'm constantly surprised at the kind of energy people can put into writing hate mail or hate tweets. It's oh, remarkable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, go back to your country or this or that. It's, you know, I've been open about my history. I'm proud of my immigration story. Um, so it's been directed towards me. And if someone wants to hurt John, it's always towards me. You know, whether it's letters in the mail, or it's posts online regularly. And I cried a lot. Like the coping part, like it's been happening for years and at first, you know, I'm not someone that's like, I don't care what anybody thinks. I, it hurts me if someone is, I want people to like me. <laughs> I'm a Pisces, you know? <laughs> I mean, people happy are, birthday. <laughs> thank you. So, um, you know, it took a lot of learning to be like, Giselle, it's not personal. Like, it's not you, Giselle. It's you, an immigrant that they're afraid of or whatever, you know? And I hate that I have to go through those steps of rationalizing it just to understand and accept so that it doesn't harm me so much. But what's been fun is, you know, I try to respond to things beautifully. Like that's my thing. How do I respond to something being painful with something positive? So I started sharing them on my Instagram stories, um, not covering their names. I <laughs> would just share and I'd say, oh, he sounds like he's fun at parties, you know? Uh, <laughs> And I don't know what I was expecting it to, ha to happen, but for me, it was like, I wasn't holding it inside, right? It was like therapeutic almost to let it out. And I got a DM from a granddaughter and she said, I'm so sorry to say this, but I know that name. Like, that's my grandpa. And like, I'm appalled that he wastes his time, like writing messages to you. And she said, I'm calling a family meeting this weekend to talk about it. <laughs> So that was amazing. I feel like things got a little quieter after that. I think people were like scared of their kids or grandkids seeing their names pop up in my feed. Um, but that was like the most amazing message, you know, that she acknowledged, like she was embarrassed to acknowledge, but she said, this is somebody I know. And I, I'm appalled to think that this is how he uses his time. Uh, <laughs> I think that scared a few people. <laughs> I think just being very open about who these people are and that they're not being very nice, you know. And I look them up, like if it's like a bot, you know, but these are people who coach basketball teams or they have little kids or their grandparents. And, you know, when I can look them up and I see they're a real person, then I, I just share and I would be like, oh my God. Or like, I get a lot of hate mail about my eyebrows. Like they call me Mark's eyebrows and you know, you know, you can shave those things. I mean, they're just ethnic. They're like dark. And I, I reply often jokingly, like, hey, I started out with one, like, give me a break. <laughs> this is what I have to work with. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes they reply like, oh, my, my, I'm sorry. Like, that was actually funny. And I'm, that was mean of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I try to reach people where they are. <laughs> um, 
It's just fantastic that people have the time to talk about your eyebrows, which are very, for those of you who can't see her eyebrows now, they're beautifully shaped. And um, if I, if you hadn't said, look at them, I don't think I necessarily would have, you know, now I'm looking at Because them. you're a nice person. So I mean, but I'm just like, I'd like to take the whole picture in, not just the eyebrows. Um, but I also think saying to them, maybe the best comeback really was, I only had the one. <laughs> uh, this is so positive. Um, and think of all the people out there who have to draw in their eyebrows. I'm very like, lucky. In fact, it's a very big look right now, that sort of <laughs> painted eyebrow. And yours are all natural. So I think people should just be quiet on that. It used to be much harder to be hateful. You know, you yeah. could keep it inside. But now, you know, or if you needed to write a letter, you had to get a pen and paper. Now you can be like slumped in your easy chair, you right. know, put down your board. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I want to normalize like kindness and like being open about feelings. And, you know, I was at a, it was like a feminist conference and it was myself and a couple of the ladies pre-COVID. And one of the questions was like, how do you, how do you deal with criticism or how do you respond? And the first two ladies, amazing ladies who might admire gave these really powerful answers and had like standing ovations and they deserved it. And my turn came and I said, I cry. <laughs> and like every feminist heart in the room, you heard like their heart breaking. Like they were so disappointed in me, but I, I can only give what I have and that's what I have. And it's okay. You don't have to be the loudest voice to be effective. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, because I cry all the time and I'm so sensitive and I'm so mushy, but I can still affect change this way. And, right. you know, it took me a while to learn that, but I know it now. <laughs> right. But I, I also think we, as you know, we, we get used to certain criticism and we, as we grow up, right. And we get older and, you know, you can take certain criticism, but I don't think it's any badge of honor if you can just let criticism roll off your back. You I, know? I, I, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, I, I think what you're doing is the right thing, right? Otherwise, what are you doing with all those feelings? Right. Right. You have, to acknowledge, you have to acknowledge those feelings. And I'm a big crier myself. Um, do you cry at commercials on TV like, like I do? All the time. Yeah, I cry at so many different things. And it's, it's so, it's for me, it's a really healthy coping mechanism. You know, you know, I, I, I have a rule. Like if I see something beautiful in someone, I speak it always. Like I compliment strangers constantly on all sorts of different things. Like I, I believe in, in saying those things out loud. I was um, voted nicest girl in high school. I'm very aww. proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> the nicest, most unassuming girl in high <laughs> school. So it, it, the, you were the good kind of, you were not, you were visible, but it was good because you were nice. Um, yeah, my brother, uh, Paul, um, is, has always taught me to smile at people and always to ask people about their day. You know, like when you're dealing with someone that you're up against and they're just like, you know, you walk into the CVS and they're like, uh-huh. Or the person at the grocery store is like, Meh. it's not about you, right? At that point, it's really worth saying to them, hey, how you doing? And a lot of times it's a huge transformation. Like, right. you know, it's, they say- Needed disruption. Kind disruptions are so important. The same way that a bad disruption can ruin your entire day, so can a good one. It can change your whole day around. Yeah. And we all know those bad disruptions that have come into our days and like someone's just crossed you the wrong way and you're like, it eats at you. So wouldn't it be nicer if kindness aided us? Oh, <laughs> 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 um, that's uh, wonderful. Um, so you also um, have been working on the rights for the undocumented. And how do you feel about our uh, President Biden now, the changes that have been made? You know, we had a, a facility in Pennsylvania that just kept me up most nights. Children were there with their families, but they were the baby jail, you know, and uh, <clears throat> activists have tried to close it for years. They try to get the governor who had no power because it was ICE um, and he closed it. 
you know, there's no families there now. I mean, you know, we've seen changes that are happening and it's only like, how, how long have we, are we in this? No time at all. Um, so I'm hopeful. I'm so hopeful. Like I'm breathing. My posture is different. <laughs> um, I know he has a commitment to dreamers, you know, these folks who have lived in limbo for so long to have some comfort. Um, I'm just hopeful, you know, the sun is a little different. It shines differently now. <laughs> and, and there's a, a, an enormous immigrant population in Pennsylvania as well, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where are most immigrants coming from now, do you know? So Pittsburgh does not have a large immigrant population. Philly still does, but like the Poconos, Redding, that area has more immigrants. Um, a lot of like Central America, Mexico, and you know, during this past four years, there was like, it was the saddest day for me. There were many sad days, but this one was really sad. Every time I talk to my family from Brazil, because they're all there, you know, every, before we hang up, it's like, we'll be there soon. We can't wait. Like that was always their dream was to move to America, always at every conversation. And somewhere in the last like two years, they stopped saying that. They're like, we're fine here. <laughs> Like we're not going anymore. And it was heartbreaking to hear that because you saw their dreams kind of like change because they saw what was happening here and what the leadership was like and um, and how the world viewed us during that time. So yeah, that was hard. That was sad for me. That's profoundly sad, especially since it's no cakewalk in Brazil right now. Oh yeah. And I, you know, I've lost, I've had a lot of personal loss during COVID. My uncle, who was like my father, I lost him. I lost two aunts and an uncle. So my grandmother, who's 94, essentially lost three kids. And um, in Brazil now it's, you know, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here in Pennsylvania, in the US, Brazil is not there yet. And they have a president who was very similar to our last president, you know, anti-mask, denying of the virus and, laughing at people's loss. I mean, truly a, a, a terrible person. Absolutely. Um, I, I, no argument on that one. I mean, how have you worked with like immigrants in the, in the state of Pennsylvania then? I mean, I think that's a, it's a challenge, right? I mean, um, yeah, so, I mean, one thing I'm the first immigrant or certainly undocumented immigrant in this position. Um, so that alone, like growing up, I searched for someone in a position that I could be like, oh my God, they made it. Like there's hope, you know? And I never found that person. So I knew that if I, when I no longer was invisible, I would be that person. Cause that's who I needed as a kid. But that's why I've become a target because of that. But, you know, we've worked to try to pass, um, CHIP is our medical coverage here for kids. So 18 and under, if you can't afford health insurance, if your parents don't have it, you're eligible to be covered under CHIP. And some slight change in language would include undocumented kids. Currently, they're not covered. Wow. So we've been trying to get that, um, which would be the dream care. Um, so any all sorts of advocacy, but mostly knowing that there's someone in this position who, who really cares about them, you know? What did you tweet the, when you became second lady? Did, did you? Oh, it was um, Pennsylvania. Your second lady was a formerly undocumented immigrant. Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, you did uh, something else that I saw early on in your career that just um, in Pennsylvania that just made my heart sing, which was creating hijabs for Barbies. Oh, yes. <laughs> we, um, so, you know, there's this quote that I love and it is, if we don't transform our pain, we will transmit it, right? So it's like, how do I transform pain? And the free store is a transformation of pain. And Food rescue is that too. And this was at the height of the Muslim travel ban. One of my best friends who's from Saudi Arabia, who wears a hijab, um, had her hijab pulled in public. And the community was just in so much pain, you know, um, and you feel helpless. You're like, how can I do anything about this? And I cry for a few days, right? And then I just the inspiration comes, how do I respond to this? <clears throat> so we launched a line of Barbie compatible hijabs. And it was the first time there were dolls with hijabs. And we hired two Muslim seamstresses and paid them a living wage to make them. And we 
work to diversify playtime. We wanted kids to see, you know, here's my Elsa doll. And whether she has a hijab on or off, it doesn't change who she is. And, you know, until today, we still have people who will stop and say, hey, I never even knew that's what it was called. Like a hijab, cool, now I know the name. But schools all over the country purchased them for their play spaces, parents all over the country. We had letters from as far as Egypt of grandmothers saying, I never had a doll who looked like me. And now my granddaughter does. And what was fun is that we got to take on like a giant like Mattel because Mattel had never done a Barbie doll with a hijab. And in every interview, and we went viral, so we were all over the place. Every interview was like, we've reached, we tried to reach Mattel and there was no comment. <laughs> and then they, they, in the, after us, they launched the Barbie who wears a hijab, who is a fence um, compet- competitor. Right. And in the press release, they had to say that they, they were not the first hijab Barbie. <laughs> it was a little nonprofit in Braddock, Pennsylvania. That is fantastic. And um, we're going to need to wrap this up before you make me cry, because the bit about that woman <laughs> getting her hijab um, pulled off of her makes me want to spontaneously um, burst into well, I will share one story. So one letter that we received was from a woman in Chicago who she purchased one for her eight-year-old daughter. Chicago has a large Muslim population. She said they got in the bus and her daughter ran to the back of the bus and she ran after her. She sat next to a woman wearing a hijab and told her that she had a doll at home that I know I'll cry too. She had a doll at home that was beautiful <laughs> like her and and that was, that's beautiful alone. But the woman, the mother said that the woman, the hijabi woman told her that she's lived in this country for 17 years. And that was the first positive experience she had in regards to her hijab. I mean, just heartbreaking, but you know, it shows that there's a lot of work to, to a lot done. of work that needs to be done. Um, so uh, what do you top? So you like a little salt water on top of your lasagna? <laughs> I've never done that. Should I do that? <laughs> I think it makes Open our tears. <laughs> for those of you, for those of you just listening along at home, what you can't see is smearing uh, eyeliner in um, two different parts of the East Coast. Um, <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for being on this. Uh, today, let me ask you an important lasagna question. Do you give it to them baked or do you let them bake it themselves? So I give it to them baked because I don't know if their home has a working stove. So I don't want them to be in that uncomfortable situation where they now have this lasagna they can't eat. So I bake it. I try to cover it real nice and tight and then run it to their house. That's wonderful. So I'm going to finish making my lasagna and I hope that um, other people out there who are listening either start like join up with lasagna love or in some way start helping out in their community um, with uh, food insecurity um, and be a nebby, right? Yes, we should all be nebby. New word, word of the day, nebby. Nebby, I love it. Um, thank you so much. I thank hope we can so speak much. again soon and um, send my best to your husband. I hope he gets the lasagna of his dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Giselle Fetterman for sharing her time and lasagna making skills with us. And thank you to her husband, John, for dropping by as well. To get involved with nationwide kindness movement, Lasagna Love, go to lasagnalove.org. And let's all try to be nebby for good this week, just like Giselle. Thank you. Thank you.